In the previous podcast, I proposed that all successful wars are alike in fundamental aspects. Is the corollary true that unsuccessful wars are each unsuccessful in their own way? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. My apologies for the long break between the previous podcast and this one. In other posts of mine elsewhere, I explained that I was away providing introductory flight instruction to junior officers and enlisted of the U.S. Air Force in preparation for upcoming flight school selection boards. These were 14-hour days of instruction in the air and on the ground, all unpaid volunteer work for the instructors. It was, however, very personally, if not financially, rewarding, and it was great to work with our future Air Force pilots. Now that I'm back, I can develop the idea I proposed in episode 42, that Tolstoy's Anna Karenina opening, that all happy families are alike, and that all unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way, also applies to success and failure in war. In that podcast, I asserted that all successful wars are alike. Now I'll explore the idea that every unsuccessful war is unsuccessful in its own way. Clausewitz wrote that everything in war is simple. As the previous podcast pointed out, all successful wars are similar in how they applied simple concepts. The most notable of these concepts is balancing resources and methods to a clearly understood end state. Clausewitz went on to say, however, that in war, even the simplest thing is difficult. This observation is from one of my favorite sections of his work on war, the chapter titled Friction in War. I kept a copy of this chapter posted above my desk in Baghdad, and just to be sure there was nothing lost in translation, that copy was in its original German, Fraktur script and all. In that chapter, Clausewitz notes that the military machine, as he called it, is basically very simple and seems easy to manage. He goes on to say that every fault and exaggeration in a war plan is instantly exposed when it is first put into action, when the machine is put to use. Moreover, he wrote, every war is rich in unique episodes which cannot be anticipated and add to the friction of war. Each of these episodes, if not quickly identified and decisively addressed, provides a unique opportunity to lose a war. So let's look at some of these unique opportunities that lost wars in the past and think about how they might apply in recent or future wars. To avoid unnecessary friction, I will not use examples where the United States was a key player. In keeping with the title of this series, The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare, I'll start with an example from the ancient world. The Peloponnesian War between Athens, Sparta, and their allies that was fought between 431 BC and 404 BC. To understand why Athens lost, I'll begin with a very brief overview of the war itself, brief considering the fact that it was a nearly 30-year war. Today, we think of Athens as the shining beacon of democracy and freedom in the ancient world. But that isn't quite true, or at least not by today's notions. Athens led the Delian League, a group of city-states that pooled its resources for common defense. In reality, Athens ran the league more like an empire than an alliance. As a maritime power, Athens extracted contributions from league members to maintain the Athenian navy 
and sometimes resorted to coercion and military action to keep League members in line. Sparta was a land-based power. It would be less accurate to say that Sparta fielded an army than it would be to say that Sparta was an army. Its allies, however, were truly independent states that looked to Sparta for leadership and protection. The war was initiated at the end of a long period of Cold War that often involved proxy wars by League members or allies. Eventually, this led to open warfare between Athens and Sparta and carried the other Greek city-states along. Although Athenian maritime operations were successful for most of the war, the long period of warfare sapped the democratic institutions of that city-state. This societal destruction was aided by a plague that broke out in Athens and which killed a large part of its population, including the oldest, wisest, and most prudent among them. Eventually, the democratic institutions in Athens were overthrown. While this was happening, successful land operations by Sparta, along with the length of the war and increasing costs, disaffected several Athenian League members. Athens found itself making war on its allies as well as the Spartans, all the while, Sparta was building its own navy, capable of challenging and defeating the Athenians at sea. About the same time, but on the other side of the world, the Chinese military philosopher Sun Tzu said, There is no instance of a nation benefiting from a long warfare. There were many factors that led to the eventual Athenian defeat, but primary among them was the length of the war that undermined the democratic institutions of the city-state and generated financial ruin. Sun Tzu also said, If victory is long in coming, then men's weapons will grow dull and their ardor will be damaged. Although Spartan institutions were more resilient than Athenian democracy, it was not unaffected by this long period of warfare. Within a generation, both Athens and Sparta would fall to newcomer Philip of Macedon and his son, Alexander the Great. History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. I'll now jump forward almost 2,000 years to look at the French defeat in the Seven Years' War. This war also pitted a land-based power, in this case France, against a maritime power, in this case Britain. Also, like the Peloponnesian War, the conflict between these two main contenders was triggered by war breaking out among their allies. These were Austria and Prussia, bringing along, by design, the involvement of Russia. The excuse for this was, as with many wars of the post-Westphalian era, dynastic succession. Three states of the Holy Roman Empire objected to the Habsburg proposal for emperor. These were Prussia, Hanover, and Brunswick, the latter two of which were ruled by the King of England. This was actually a mere pretext that precipitated war between Austria and Prussia. More serious was the unstated desire by France to put a Bourbon king on the throne of Poland. This would interfere with Russia's involvement of the war and was a contributing factor to France's defeat. As a land power, France pursued a land-dominant strategy. It believed that conquering the German possessions of the King of England would force Britain to negotiate a peace that would return whatever French colonies would be taken by British maritime operations. This peace would then allow France and its allies to concentrate on Prussia and dismember it. The problem is that it didn't work that way. Prussia, under Frederick the Great, provided a much more wily and capable foe than they anticipated. Using interior lines, he was able to hold off defeat while providing assistance to British-German territories. 
At the same time, France's ambitions for Poland kept Polish territory from being used effectively by Russia, who obviously wanted their candidate as King of Poland. The collapse of this strategy came with the death of Empress Elizabeth of Russia. Elizabeth's successor, Peter, favored Prussia and withdrew from the war. So why didn't the French strategy work? Well, mostly because it overestimated the ability of the land campaign to be successful. France was shocked when its own armies were defeated by the Prussians and by the resilience of the Hanoverian forces, who were excellent in and of themselves and commanded by a Prussian general. Their interference with Russian operations delayed the defeat of Prussia, and with Russia's withdrawal from the war, the prospects of defeating Prussia were negligible. France faced loss of their colonies in America and India with no success in Germany to trade for return of those territories. Sun Tzu said, If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy or yourself, you will succumb in every battle. It can be argued that the French military commanders knew themselves, but did not know their enemies or their allies, making victory uncertain at best. One hundred years later, in 1870, the French and Prussians went at it again, and again the excuse was a disagreement over succession to one of the royal houses of Europe, in this case, Spain, where the Spanish invited a member of the Prussian royal house to become king. This was unacceptable to the French. The truth was that Napoleon III was looking for a successful war to improve his popularity position and was convinced that France could beat Prussia. This was because France had a larger army than Prussia and better rifles and machine guns. France had also been successful in several recent colonial wars and believed that this was sufficient combat experience for a war against Prussia. Prussia's Iron Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, knew differently and maneuvered Napoleon into declaring war against Prussia. Suddenly, because France declared war on a German state, Almost all German states north of Austria aligned with Prussia. France found itself outnumbered and fighting a force that may not have been better equipped, but was better organized, better led, and with recent successful combat experience against other European powers. Tactical success against native forces in France's colonial empire could not match that. Adding to this, French tactical dispositions were directed by political considerations in Paris, sacrificing sound military operations to allay public opinion. All in all, France lost the war before the first shot was fired, and the cause was hubris. They both overestimated their own capabilities and seemed completely unaware of German military developments. In Sun Tzu's maxim, they knew neither the enemy nor themselves, and so were defeated. Today, we seem primarily concerned with insurgency-type operations. Contrary to popular opinion, not every insurgency is successful. As I mentioned in the discussion about the French defeat in 1870, a contributing factor in their loss was overconfidence built on their successful counterinsurgency wars. Of 72 post-World War II insurgencies, 11 were clear victories for the opposing government forces. Winning an insurgency is more difficult than one might imagine from popular histories of the last half century and the argument can be made that insurgents don't win as much as governments fail. Frank Zimmerman, 
writing for the Naval Postgraduate School in 2007, identified six requirements for insurgent success. These are a cause to fight for, local populist support, weakness in the government authority, favorable geographic conditions, external support in the middle and later stages of the insurgency, and an information advantage. Each of these must favor the insurgent, and disrupting one or more can lead to an insurgency's failure. Therefore, there are at least six different ways an insurgency can fail, and combinations of more than one element lead to thousands of possibilities. Each unsuccessful insurgency, therefore, can be unique, and Zimmerman's research showed that each failure was, in fact, unsuccessful in its own way. I'll describe three of them. In post-World War II Greece, the insurgents experienced multiple failures. The communists failed to identify and exploit an issue that would generate popular support, and the communist ideology was at odds with Greek culture, especially in the rural areas. Without a cause to unify the people behind them, the communists engaged in executions, conscription, confiscation of resources, and general terrorism to try to force the people to support them. Now, this only led to further alienating the population. Greek communists also failed to get material support from the Soviet Union and even lost support from Yugoslavia when Tito disassociated his country from Stalin's Russia. Although the Greek communists had advantages in the other three areas, the lack of a unifying cause, disaffection of the local populace, and lack of external support combined to pass the initiative to government forces and erode any advantage they enjoyed in the other three areas. During the Malayan emergency of 1948 to 1950, the Malayan Communist Party struggled from the beginning. They never developed a unifying cause since their stated cause, the independence of Malaya, was also a stated British cause. This feature made it unique from the Greek situation since both sides could claim that they had the same objective. Malaya was also different in that they could hope to exploit a minority ethnic population. These were Chinese who, although economically dominant, were politically and socially oppressed. The Malay government, however, worked with the British to address the grievances of oppressed minorities and separate the Chinese population from contact with the communist forces. This, in turn, made getting broad support from the local populace difficult and insurgent practices not only alienated the population. Communist activity was seen as counterproductive to the economic recovery that most Malayans were experiencing. Their only real popular support came from the ethnic Chinese population, which only further alienated the majority Malay population. The Malayan communists also lacked external support as their only land border was with the Kingdom of Thailand, which was strongly anti-communist. All in all, they failed to achieve four or five of the criteria necessary for success. It was only the difficulty of operating in the interior of the country that allowed the insurgency to continue as long as it did. A final failed insurgency I will present is the Mau Mau Rebellion of, in Kenya of 1952 to 1960. Unlike the previous two examples, the Mau Mau were able to create a unifying cause based on local religions and culture intended to drive out European presence and influence. Disorganization of the local government and British preoccupation with Malaya also helped the Mau Mau effort. The information element also favored the Mau Mau, at least initially, as the British did not understand the cultural basis for Mau Mau support, its organization, or goals. However, Mau Mau terror tactics, although successful at first, 
ultimately turned the population against them. As the population turned to the British, other advantages turned against the Mau Mau. Ultimately, their excesses were their undoing. This, coupled with aggressive and innovative counterinsurgency techniques by the British, led to the complete military defeat of the Mau Mau and their cause. So, although the Mau Mau started with a strong strategic advantage, and the British lack of information fell right into Sun Tzu's warning about not knowing the enemy, the Mau Mau's excessive actions against the local populace turned that populace against them and towards the British, and so they threw away any prospects for victory. So there you are, three different cases of unsuccessful insurgencies on different continents and with different cultures, with different reasons or combinations of reasons for failure. I could go on. French failure after military success in Algeria and French failure in Indochina are worth study, but four examples of French failure would make people think that I'm just beating up on the French. I deliberately avoided discussing American failures, but U.S. failure in Vietnam and against the Seminole Indians in Florida is also worth exploring, as is Mexican failure in the Mexican-American War. Each of these show how unsuccessful wars are unsuccessful in their own way. Each of these, however, also demonstrates a failure to achieve the elements described in the previous episode about how all successful wars are alike. The most important of these elements being a clear strategy that accurately identifies realistic goals with measurable objectives that are attainable by the resources and methods available. To go back to Clausewitz, war is very simple. But achieving the elements necessary for success and avoiding the myriad ways of being unsuccessful seems to be very difficult. Progress in the military art seems to come more from careful analysis of failure than of victory. I hope that the United States and our allies have the moral courage to learn from failure, remembering that learning is defined as a change in behavior as the result of experience. So, what should my next topic be? I've got lots of ideas, but I want to know what interests you. Please leave a comment, and it may be a future episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, and leaving you with a thought that in planning our route forward, we don't have a window that can see into the future. Our paths have to be guided by mirrors looking at the past. <laughs>